Am I on? Yes. Okay, there we go, there we go. I can hear myself a bit better now, thank you. Uh, look, a man went to God and said to him, Lord, is it true that a day is like a thousand years? And the Lord said, yes, yes, that's true. So he said, is it true that a thousand years is like a day? And he says, yes, that's what I said in scripture, yes, that's true. So he said, in the same way then, is it true that one penny is like a million pounds? He says, well, yes, I suppose so, yes, I, yeah, yeah, I can see that. And so a million pounds is like a penny? He says, yes, the Lord says, yes, I think, I think that must be true, yes. So the man pauses and turns to the Lord and says, uh, so in that, in view of all those things, Lord, do you mind lending me one P? And the Lord, without a batting of eyelid, if he has them, just said, that's okay, just wait there a minute. Now, judging by some of your reactions to that joke, this sermon is going to feel like a thousand years uh, for some of you. And uh, we're in Acts chapter 10. I'm very grateful for the chance to uh, preach this morning, so thank you Steve and Keith who invited me. And uh, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. And uh, we're in this series on Acts, which is you know, an amazing book. And I'm so pleased with what Steve's been saying about, we don't just want to talk about the Holy Spirit, we're a church that believes that God actually can come, and we believe that the Holy Spirit is a, a part of the Trinity of God that we really believe is relevant and active today. And I hope I'll be able to do that justice a bit later as well. Uh, we're in the middle of this series, Dave and Susie Bickford spoke last week, interweaving Acts 9, a bit of a healing and a raising from the dead. Uh, along with their stories from China. So we come to this story in Acts chapter 10. Now, I don't know who the jokers were who uh, divided up the passages, but this is I've been given Acts chapter 10 and the beginning of 11. Uh, there's about 37 different themes in this passage, and uh, I've got 10 minutes to do it in. So um, that's about one point every 16 seconds for you mass people over there. But anyway, it's not going to take 10 minutes. It's going to be more like 25, I think. So we're in Acts chapter 10, and because it's too long to read, I'm going to just bullet point the story, sort of praise it. But if you want to follow it, there's going to be a whistle-stop introduction just to get us up to speed with what's going on. Okay, Acts chapter 10, there's a Roman centurion called Cornelius. He's praying in verse 3, something he seems to be usually doing at 3 p.m. each day. Um, In verses 1 and 2, it talks about he's obviously a God-seeker, or as the text calls him, devout and God-fearing. He has a vision from an angel who specifically tells him in detail to send for a guy called Peter in a town called Joppa, uh, living, staying with a guy called Simon, uh, who's a tanner, who's a leather worker. The centurion then immediately dispatches two of his servants and one of his soldiers to Joppa. This is 32 miles away, so they had a long walk that day, or they went by horse. Uh, Peter, who, remember, is not allowed to associate with these people at all because they're Gentiles. More about that in a minute. He's praying as well, and he has a vision. And I love the detail in verse 9 and 10, if you'll just sort of slow down a bit here. Verse 9 and 10, about noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, I love these details for two reasons. Firstly, if you don't, haven't realised that the Bible and this church is full of ordinary people that an extraordinary God encounters, here's one of those details. He was hungry. 
Right? He's hungry. He's an ordinary guy. He's hungry. I love that detail that the Bible comes out. It really goes out of its way to remind us that these are ordinary people. And secondly, the, what I love about this story is a slightly, slightly cheeky thought from my best man who um, spent a year in America with a church and they used to have Saturday morning prayer meetings. And he used to be absolutely assuring me that the, uh, the prayer meetings, the longer they went on, the closer they got to lunchtime, the more any pictures or prophetic words came, they were about food. I just see a pizza and, you know, lots of salad and Coke and stuff. And anyway, he was, he was being flippant. But Peter has an encounter with God near lunchtime, but he's hungry. He's an already guy. He's hungry. Uh, the visions come that suggest Peter should eat some meat, which he's not allowed to as a Jew. Uh, certain types of meat. Anyway, whilst he's pondering this, Cornelius' servants arrive and the Holy Spirit tells Peter to go with the men. That's verses 19 and 20. Peter walks the 32 miles or goes on horseback back to uh, Caesarea, uh, uh, preaches to Cornelius, his family and friends, verses 34 to 43. The Holy Spirit falls upon them spontaneously. I'll be looking out for that this morning. Uh, Verse 44, uh, verse 47 to 48, they get baptised in water. And in chapter 11, Peter has to explain all this to the Council of Jerusalem. All right, here we go. You see, I didn't want to read all that. Okay, look, here's a few things. Uh, we've got a PowerPoint, look at that. I've, I've done prezies at work, if you're into prezies, and, you know, this is just a basic PowerPoint. So, apologies for those who love whiz-bangy things. So, here we go. Uh, next slide, please. There's three, three points that I want to make this morning. And there they are. We, I want to make the point that we have a part to play. Ordinary people playing their part in the kingdom of God. Uh, secondly, I want to talk about God's tremendous generosity. And thirdly, I want to talk about the pervasive, the all-pervasive work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have a part to play. Cornelius was devout and God-fearing. He was praying every day. He was praying, and Peter was praying at the other end of the story. Let's not underestimate actually talking to God. Let's not underestimate that. The Jewish tradition was at 3 p.m. every day. And I'm not sure where, but actually Muslims are in the middle of Ramadan at the moment. And of course, their Islamic faith says they pray five times a day. Now, we had, uh, we had some food with Keith and Eileen Elmit, one of the other leaders of the churches, uh, church, on Thursday. And they were telling some stories. They'd been reading some stories about Muslims around the world being converted. And as they get converted, they don't ditch their five times a day prayer. But they're actually using the five times a day rhythm to pray contemporaneously, to look spontaneously with God, not using prayers by rote, but praying from their heart and, 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 and as, they, as they feel. They're also obviously praying to the Father, but they haven't ditched the five times a day. In Daniel chapter 6, you know, when Daniel eventually gets thrown into the lion's den, um, he's praying three times a day. Now, Daniel's a great example of a busy guy. He's like the chief civil servant of his day. If anybody's got an excuse to be busy and not to pray, he is the guy. But we see he gets thrown into the lion's den uh, for it, but actually he's praying three times a day. And look at the impact he had on his generation and, and that nation as well. I'm in no way a Daniel, wish I was, hope to meet him one day. But um, I just went for a job recently and my boss wrote, he showed me the reference. And he, he said in it that Richard has a distinctive profile around the school. Now that can mean anything, can it? And my boss loves his word, he's an ex-lawyer and he loves his word. So I asked him what he meant. He says, well you go out of the building to pray, don't you, at lunchtimes? Now, I, I'm not pretending to be a Daniel, but my boss has written in a reference to a potential employer that I have a distinctive profile. Because I, I try, at lunchtime, to walk out of my school. When my boss asked me about it, I, I said to him, it's good advice, Chris. 
because uh, that's his name. I said, it's good advice, Chris. Get out of the building. I, I offer you this. Is that whatever you're doing at work or at home, get out of your whatever you're doing and get some fresh air. That is good advice. Secondly, even better advice is to try and pray. Now, let's not be too old-fashioned about this. I mean, some people might say, well, it's old covenant. We don't, we don't need to pray. It's all about grace. But as Steve Jones, uh, Steve Thomas always says, you know, we need to pray to draw down God's grace. We actually need to pray to remind ourselves that God's in charge. We need to rem- pray because we need to remind ourselves how small we are, how God, big God is, and how capable he is. When I go out at lunchtime, I'm often talking to God sometimes about the, the Bible reading I read in the morning, or something that difficult that's happened in the morning, or something that's going to be coming up in the afternoon. It's actually fantastic to pray. Can I commend prayer to you? I hope I'm getting some sucking up points here because uh, Steve Jones has sent us a, an email this summer as missional community leaders and he said to us a heads up on what the church leadership believes to be God's now word for the coming year. We believe that God is leading us all into a refreshed daily walk with him, allowing our personal relationships with Jesus the time they deserve and enjoying time with God. We've got Roy Goblin from Father Brennan coming, author of The Grace Outpouring, Simon and Gaynor Shaw also leading worship on that day on Sunday the 9th September, and we will be following this up with a continuing focus on prayer. So it seems there's a bit of a thing going on here. Let's not underestimate praying and talking to God. bit old-fashioned, but I commend it to you. But this, um, this, uh, this guy, Cornelius and Peter, they weren't just praying. Obviously, Cornelius is noted as a man of uh, acts of service doing kind things. Now, as part of our missional community called Connect, Malcolm and Sally Riley are great servants in that. And um, Malcolm, the other day, was uh, asked by his father-in-law to go and mend the father-in-law's telly. Uh, and it was, he was just about to buy a new telly and, uh, you know, get an expensive engineering. But, you know, Malcolm is a great guy. And he lives in Rydenhurst. He's not available to the rest of you. So uh, uh, he lives just around the corner from me. And... Um, Amazing servant, Malcolm. And he, anyway, Malcolm only went and fiddled with an aerial and he did some stuff at the back of the telly. It was all working again. An act of service. Now, Sally's father, his father-in-law, said, that's what Christians should be. You're a proper Christian. Proper Christians do nice things for people. That saved my neighbour X hundred pounds. So again, let's not underestimate acts of service. We're going to come on to look at what God does and what the Holy Spirit does and what all that the Lord does. Clearly, he does 99.9% of anything that's good in the kingdom. But let's not underestimate that we can pray and that it works and changes things and God listens and acts. Let's not underestimate that we have things to do, acts of service. Cornelius was noted as a guy who was um, you know, active and doing good things. Obedience. Where's the old, uh, what's going on with the PowerPoint there? No, there we go, brilliant. Prayer, acts of service and obedience. It's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? Lots of old-fashioned words. I'm going to talk about repentance later just to really uh, cheer us all up. <laughs> Uh, obedience. So I called it responsiveness, just to make it a bit easier. Look, these guys respond to what God is doing. As soon as Cornelius sees the vision from the angel, he explains it to his servants and dispatches them. He's a centurion. He just tells them to go, and they have to go. Now, a little detail here is that they go to Joppa. Now, those of you who know your Bibles know that that's where Jonah who was running away from God, when Jonah got, tried to, uh, got told by God to go and preach to the Ninevites, Jonah runs to Joppa to try and escape and then gets swallowed by a, a whale and a big fish and all those things. So Jonah was disobedient, was run away from God. Contrasting that, Cornelius 
as soon as he hears from God, dispatches his guys and he says, go and talk to Simon, go and find this man. He was compliant, he wanted to act, he heard God, he did what he, did what he told. Imagine the mission these guys are on, they've got to go 32 miles to find a guy called Simon in a house from Simon, I mean it's a bit of an obscure mission, but they just go, they have to. They were told by their boss to go, but Cornelius responds and says, right, God's spoken, I'll have to, right, I'll have to do something. Now Peter has got massive problems in this, uh, in this, in this story. He's praying, and there's all sorts of problems with him. He can't speak or interact with anybody who's a, a Jew. Uh, not a Jew, sorry. And his initial reaction in verse 14 to the instruction to eat the mixture of clean and unclean animals is surely not Lord. Now this is the same reaction that Ananias has when he's told to go and pray for Saul in chapter 9. Ananias says, surely not Lord. It's always an interesting phrase to say, isn't it? Surely not, Lord. It's an interesting opening gambit. But these guys knew their Bibles. They said, this isn't what, this isn't right. This isn't, we're not supposed to go with these non-Jews. And Ananias knew that Saul had been persecuting the church. But he says, surely not, Lord. But they're willing, not very quickly after the surely not, comes the proper reaction. Now, it's also not very um, clear cut for Peter. As he's having this vision, and he's thinking about it. I'm sure he hadn't sorted it all out in his brain. You've got to understand, hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition has said, Jews do not talk to Gentiles. So into that context, Peter has this vision. I'm sure he's still working it out when guys arrive at his door. God speaks and says, you know, you must go with them. But it's not very convenient. I mean, while he's preaching the gospel in, in the later on in the passage, the Holy Spirit comes. I mean, actually, nothing's ever finished before God does something else. This is not very convenient for Peter. But let me put this thought to you. When God is on the move, because God is in control, we may not be. I'll just say that again. When God is on the move and he is in control, we might not be. But what do Peter and Cornelius do? They're willing. They respond. They say yes. They go. And I hope that's an example for us. So we have a part to play. They showed, played their part. Now, God's tremendous generosity. Now, when you get a passage like this, you know, the, the Holy Spirit and the gospel goes from the, the, the Jews to the Gentiles. I, I've got to give you some context here. Um, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But by the end of chapter 7 in Acts, it all happened in Jerusalem. Everything was contained in Jerusalem, the first bit of that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. All of it had happened up till then in Jerusalem. The stoning of Stephen in chapter 8 brought persecution and scattered the church. Chapter 9, Paul is a, uh, a Jew, but he's a persecutor of the church and a terrible person against the church. So chapter 10, this is the first time the gospel... And the Holy Spirit really intently works outside of the Jewish faith. Even in Acts chapter 2, in the Pentecost, when God comes and people are praising God and speaking in tongues, all sorts is going on, those guys were primarily Jewish people attending a festival. They were signed up Jews, circumcised, um, festival goers, uh, law abiders, and they were, they were Jews, proper Jews. And you have to understand the Jewish mentality. There was Jews and then nothing else. You were a Jew or not. 
And that's and the Gentiles. But that's you and me, by the way. We're the Gentiles. We were not in the club. And Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when, it's, when Jesus said, you will go to the ends of the earth, I don't think they really understood that at that moment, the disciples. They were all in Jerusalem. They were doing, there was loads going on, but I don't think they understood to the ends of the earth. And certainly they would not have expected to speak to or encounter or work with a Roman centurion. You have to get into this story to understand that a lot of the Jews hated the Romans. They hated the Romans. Some of the Jews, there's a whole wing of them devoted to killing the Romans. And even in the Gospels, some of Jesus' disciples were asking when he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and establish the Jewish state and the kingdom of God. So you have to understand how difficult this was for Peter to go. Now, to quote Dave Mundy, who helped me with the, the start of this, uh, the, the, this, this, this part of the sermon. Dave says, this was the normative culture for the Jews. You were either circumcised, reading the law, obeying its rules, and adopting all the festivals and traditions of the Jewish faith, a Jew, or you were not. There were Jews and then nothing else. And to quote another great scholar, John Stott, he says, it's difficult... It's difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews and the Gentiles. The tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of election to one of favouritism, becoming filled with racial pride and hatred, despising the Gentiles as dogs, and developing traditions which kept them out. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into his home. On the contrary, all friendly connections with Gentiles were utterly forbidden. And no pious Jew would, of course, have sat down at the table of the Gentile. So into this entrenched prejudice, the story of Cornelius and Peter occurs. Now, just turn your Bibles to verse um, 34 to 43. So you have to understand, Peter's really, really on the edge of what he's comfortable with. Totally, totally on the edge of what he's comfortable with. He shouldn't be talking to these guys. He shouldn't invite them into his home. He shouldn't be going to their home. He is not allowed. But he knows God has spoken to him. He knows he has to go with what the Holy Spirit is doing. So he goes. And in verses 34 to 43, you've got to remember, Peter was a broken man. Talk about ordinary people. If you just cast your mind back through any of your memory about the Gospels, he was a guy who denied Jesus three times. He was, you know... He'd struggled. And here he is, time after time after time again, seeing the kingdom of God come out raging. There's an encouragement for us. And he preaches this gospel message, three, three points. Christ lived, Christ died, and Christ was resurrected. If we can have the next PowerPoint. Christ lived, Christ died, and Christ was resurrected. You see, in those first few verses, 34 to 38, he talks about Jesus coming as a man... Not impressive in a worldly sense no, sense, no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, but a man who was anointed. Anointed by the Holy Spirit and with power. Going around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So Christ lived this amazing life. Peter goes on in verse 39 to say he died on a tree. That's a bit of an obscure thought, dying on a tree, but it was actually really relevant that Peter chose the word tree. It's deliberate language because the Jews considered that anybody who died on a tree was cursed. Jesus was cursed for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace 
was on, on him. And by his wounds we are healed. And in verse 43 he said that Jesus died so that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Is, that's why we're here this morning, isn't it? I mean, that, that is why we're here this morning, isn't it? That's why we believe, isn't it? Because we actually believe this is true. I was talking to my brother the other day in the pub, and he's, he's, uh, he's struggling with his faith for some reason at the moment. And I said, forget all the church politics. What about Christ dying on the cross for you? And out came a, a very sad answer, actually. But th- that is why we're here, isn't it? Because Christ died for us, and that we need our sins forgiven. This is where you want an African church and you want some response. I mean, I, is this working? I don't know. Is this, hello? I mean, this is why we're here, isn't it? Because Christ died for our sins, because we need it, because we're stuffed without him, because he's infinite and we're not. And whether we're trying or even if uh, Cornelius was trying with his access and praying, he wasn't getting it. He still needed Christ. We still need Christ. That's why we're here this morning. And not only did Christ live, die, he was resurrected. And Peter's very careful about his facts. He said, God raised him from the dead. It was a divine act that he was resurrected. He wasn't asleep for a couple of days. It was on the third day, i.e. it was dateable. And it was seen and verified by many witnesses. Now here's my friend John Stock. Uh, page 199. Luke has now recounted the conversions of Saul in the previous chapter and Cornelius. The differences between these two men were considerable. In race, Saul was a Jew, Cornelius a Gentile. In culture, Saul was a scholar, Cornelius a soldier. In religion, Saul was a bigot, Cornelius a seeker. Yet both are converted by the gracious initiative of God. Both received forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. And both were baptised and welcomed into the Christian family on equal terms. This is amazing. Now... I just want to look at another passage. Can you just go on to the next slide? Ephesians 2, because some other passages, 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 I've been travelling a lot in the last few weeks, passages help us understand. Now, this is the J.B. Phillips version. Now, just in terms of you waking up a bit, a bit of audience participation, let's read this together, because this actually really, really helps us understand what we believe as Christians and the unbelievable generosity you can see where I nick the phrase from look tremendous generosity is coming up so let's read this together um, okay all right after three so I'm a teacher so forgive me uh, one two three but even though we were dead in our sins God who is rich in mercy because of the great love he had for us gave us life together with Christ. It is, remember, by grace and not by achievement that you are saved. And he has lifted us right out of the old life to take our place with him in Christ in the heavens. Thus he shows for all time the tremendous generosity of the grace and kindness he has expressed towards us in Christ Jesus. Take a breath. Okay, here we go. It was nothing you could or did achieve. It was God's gift to you. No one can pride himself upon earning the love of God. The fact is that what we are, we owe to the hand of God upon us. We are born afresh in Christ and born to do those good deeds which God planned for us to do. 
Do not lose sight of the fact that you were born Gentiles, known by those whose bodies were circumcised as the uncircumcised. You were without Christ. You were utter strangers to God's chosen community, the Jews. You had no knowledge of or right to the promised agreements. You had nothing to look forward to and no God to whom you could turn. But now, through the blood of Christ, you who are once outside the pale are with us inside the circle of God's love and purpose. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, isn't that why we're here this morning? Because of that? Because Christ died for us and we've gone from nothing to being children of God. We've gone from eternal death to eternal life. Let's just ponder. I had a friend once who used to, I used to catch him daydream. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm thinking of heaven. He used to deliberately make himself think of heaven. Can I deliberately make you think about eternal life right now? Forget Olympics, forget economic woes, forget lunch. Think about eternal life just for a minute and let your mind blow a fuse. Because if this is true, we were absolutely had no hope, but now we're confident that we have eternal life with God. That is amazing, isn't it? Isn't that what we believe? That's what I believe. That's what this passage talks about. So, God's tremendous generosity. I hope you're beginning to agree with me that he is tremendously generous. I hope we've understood that we have a part to play. And let's look at the all-pervasive work of the Holy Spirit in the last five minutes. The whole of the book of Acts is littered, infused, saturated, pervaded with the Holy Spirit doing things. In this story alone, there's visions, dreams, specific instructions, there's the gift of tongues, they're praising God, the last chapter there was a healing and a raising from the dead, and so on and so on. Now it's a bit tough to ask my wife Esther to come up and talk now in this context, but... The, the stories, Esther's got two dreams to talk about, and I've got two stories from my work to talk about. They are not world shattering, life changing things like Acts. Now, two years ago, I spoke on, uh, from Ezekiel 47 about the river running through the temple. And if you were here, I don't know if you remember the sermon, but we opened up that um, delivery door. We, we were talking about the Holy Spirit, the river of God going out there. And it talks about the river of God being ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep, and then it was so deep you couldn't swim. I think these stories are ankle deep. I'm asking the Lord for knee deep, but still, they're where we're at, and they're, they're probably ankle deep. But Esther, um, have we got another? So this is about dreams. These guys are having dreams. This is real for now. Yeah, every so often I have a dream that I know um, is significant um, and sometimes a bit slow on the uptake, as I am with a couple of these stories. But um, one of them um, was uh, I had a friend that I was a, a colleague with years ago and then we had children at the same time. So we knew each other quite well. We spent quite a lot of time together. And then with sort of life circumstances changing, she went back to work full time. We just lost touch, so we just haven't seen each other 
for about two years. And those of you that know me will know that I don't really go onto Facebook, so I'm not very good at keeping in touch with people like that generally. So I hadn't seen her for two years, and then I had this dream, really, really clear, just her face was like taking up the whole sort of picture in my dream, and she was crying and obviously very, very upset. So I woke up the next morning and thought that was quite significant, talked to Rich about it. But then, as I am a bit slow on the uptake sometimes, I just forgot about it, actually. I'd meant to get in touch with her, and then I just forgot. And then, a couple of weeks later, I saw... Um, we were spent, spent the evening with some friends, one of whom works with her. So I just, completely having forgotten about the dream, asked how she was doing. And she said, oh, I don't think she's doing very well at the moment. I think she's got problems at home. Um, then, sadly, it still took me another week to link the two together. I suddenly remembered my dream and this conversation. And then I got in touch with her on Facebook, and she replied straight away and said, actually, um, I'm going through a divorce. Um, so we met up, and I spent two or three hours with her in a cafe, uh, which was really good. And this is not a completed story. I'd love to be able to say that I persuaded her not to get, not to get a divorce and her, her marriage has been restored. But um, it's just part of the, the ongoing story. We, years ago, we'd had lots of spiritual conversations in the cafe. I was still able to remind her of God's love for her. For her and I hope that that will be something that will continue. Um, so that was the first one. The other one, more recently, um, a colleague of mine at work... Um, she is a very nice person um, she wears lots of makeup is always absolutely exquisitely dressed everything matches and this is sort of how she is as a person as well it's like she's wearing a mask so you have conversations with her but there's never anything that's real you never really know who she is or what's going on with her Um, And it's kind of the same both ways as well. She's always very good to remember details about you, and she'll ask one question about you, but it never goes any further. So it's it's very sort of superficial relationship she has with people. And the other day, I had a dream that she told me that she had a terminal disease. Um, So I thought, that's quite significant. Um, And I didn't really think that it meant that she had terminal disease, but I just thought the fact that I had that dream was significant. Um, So I prayed, and a colleague of mine is a Christian as well in the same department, and I told her, and we both prayed. Um, And then one day, I was just we were just making a cup of coffee, and she was there, um, and I said to her, how are you? And normally, you'd just get a sort of fine, thank you reply. But she actually told, I had the first real conversation with her that I've had in five years. And she, it wasn't a huge amount of things, but she told me a few health issues that are going on and how um, she was struggling at work a little bit with that. And I was absolutely amazed at what she was telling me because she just isn't like this at all. Um, so again, I think that's the kind of ongoing story. My colleague and I are continuing to pray for her. She is struggling many things at the moment. Um, and I just, I think that you know, God has obviously spoken to me in order to open up a little bit. So, Thank you, Esther. And, uh, you know, these are unfinished stories, but I think those dreams are from God. I do. And um, I, uh, I tried to prophesy over my 
PA at work the other day. Uh, for those of you that are not sure what prophecy is, you know, it really simply we believe that God can speak to us and give you a message for someone. That, that's basically, I think, what prophetic is in a simplest nutshell. And she was leaving, so it's always a good time to try and slip something in, see uh, <laughs> if it goes wrong. Um, anyway, she was leaving, and I thought, present, how do I, you know, and we'd had many conversations actually about the gospel and stuff, and uh, I thought, oh. and so I, I, I began to pray, I began to get a bit agitated in a good way. And um, I was praying, over, I had about a day and a half before she was leaving, I prayed, and I, I heard a couple of things in my mind which I would, they weren't from me, okay? It's the same as if I pray for you later on, or you, you, you know, you, we pray for each other, you hear, you, that can't be of me. And I shared them with her, and one of the things was that she, her mother had died when she was younger, and she was really, I said, I, I really believe that you, you're afraid of death, and Jesus can help you with that. And so at the end of this conversation, which had a bit more to it than that, I, I said to her, like I would normally do here, I'd say, you know, does that make any sense? And she said, well... I'm not afraid of my own death, but I do wake up every single day and go and look at my children because I'm afraid that they'll die. And I go and look in their beds before they wake up because I'm afraid that they're going to die because that's how my mum died. Now, again, I wish she was converted there and then. Anyway, the conversation went on and she wrote me an email saying, thanks for your words of wisdom. And I wrote back and confirmed what I said sort of prophetically. And I, and I said, Jesus has the keys to eternal life. And to your life now. So I was able to preach the gospel over email. Unfinished. But I think the Holy Spirit started that. Now I prayed a bit. But the Holy Spirit was helping me. The other one was with another lady I work with. Who um, We have to manage uh, the data of the school that I work in. Uh, just finishing by the way. And we um, we often have problems with teachers meeting deadlines. I'm sure this is true in any workplace. But you know, believe it or not, teachers, despite the fact we preach to all our kids about having a homework in time, we don't always do our homework on time. And uh, it's a bit of a problem. When you're trying to manage yeah, all these reports coming in, going out to parents, it's a problem. And there are certain colleagues who struggle more than others, let's say that. And this colleague, struggling more than others, wasn't, didn't meet the deadline and wasn't working on the Friday she was a part-timer. Now, normally the route there is to email them and say, can you get this sorted pronto, please? Now, she wasn't picking up her email. Surprise, surprise. There's the first solution uh, not working. The second solution is then to go to the head of faculty and say, look, have you got their text? Uh, I don't want to phone home. It's a bit top-down for a senior leader to talk to. You know, so can you, can you phone them, drop them a text and say, anyway, so the, the head of faculty is out of school that day. So that's my second solution. And this is becoming a real problem now. We've got deadlines stacking up. We've got a whole number of things coming along. So in that moment of um, the solutions that I would normally sort out are coming to an end, that type of moment, in a moment of stupidity, I said, I'm going to pray about that to this non-Christian colleague. I said, I'm going to pray about that. And then you know, once it comes out there, you think, oh, can I get that back? No, I, oh, I said it, good. I wanted to say it. Now I have to live that. And I, So... And so over this next 24 hours, I was praying. I said, Lord, you've got to do this. I mean, it was basically that sort of rude sort of prayer. Uh, Lord, you've got to do this. This is so easy. I need her to, to pick up her emails and I need to sort this out. Because I now said this to my colleague. It wasn't a great prayer. I mean, it wasn't a cultured prayer, as you, as you might have imagined from me. Anyway, uh, the colleague picks up her emails at 1 a.m. that morning. And says, I'm coming in tomorrow morning, I'm going to sort this out at 9 o'clock tomorrow. And it was the earliest we could have expected. But the point was, we had no way of getting contact with her. And I said, I'm going to pray. In an email to my colleague, the, the, the data manager I work with, I said, isn't that a coincidence that I said I pray? And she picked up her email at 1 o'clock and eight hours later she's in school doing it. I've just been provocative. 
she didn't reply. So I'm like, oh no, I want a story here. Come on, like, this isn't finished. So I, uh, I, so I emailed her again. <laughs> the other email was on the back of just a long email. And, and P.S. Did you think that was interesting? This one was just title interesting. Didn't you think it was interesting that <laughs> she had to reply to this because I was going to ask her? And do you know what she replied? About three hours later, she said, "I wish the answer was better than this." She said, "Whatever makes you happy." <laughs> Which actually really hurt me. But I don't care. Because I'm trying in my workplace. I believe this Holy Spirit stuff is for real and for now. And not just for this morning. I think it's for out there as well. Yeah. And I want to ask you, and I want to put up these traffic lights here. Yeah, the Holy Spirit was everywhere, in everything. Doing supernatural things to bring the kingdom of God. But can you just put up these traffic lights and the next three things? We've been in a series, I'm just bringing this into land here. We've been into series now on Acts for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. I want to ask you the question, what is our response to these stories? It's massively important how we respond. And being a teacher, we use traffic lights a lot. You know, your response isn't probably one or the other. You could be on a continuum from red down to green. You could be anywhere on a scale. Red, no way. Whatever. Don't believe it. Uh, that was for then. Uh, not for now. Don't believe the gospel anyway. No way. And, uh, you know, hated this morning. What are you talking about? And your shirt's rubbish as well, you know. That's, that's the red traffic light. You might be in the yellow traffic light. Yeah, I'm interested, I'm interested, yeah. It's quite interesting. Uh, not sure, but I'm interested. I'm in the amber traffic light. Or you're in the green traffic light, or somewhere in that continuum. Because it's massively important whether we believe these stories or not are relevant for us. What's our response to these stories? Not to me, the service, starting late. It doesn't matter, none of that's important. What is our response to this story about God's tremendous generosity. What is our response to the the work of the Holy Spirit who is all over these stories? Dreams, visions, healings, raisings from the dead. Um, Ethiopian transported to another place. Ananias is fire getting killed. I mean, this book is absolutely rampant with the work of God. The thing is, what is our response to that? It's massively important. We can't actually, I don't think we can read this passively. I think you have to have a reaction to this. You, actually, I think you're either going to go towards red or you come towards green. Now, you may be somewhere in between, but it's massively important. Now, I read an email from Steve earlier on about the autumn and praying. And Look, the Olympic Games have been a wonderful thing. And we've had um, the Royal Wedding and um, yeah, the Queen's Jubilee. I think it's a wonderful time to be British and to celebrate that. I think we need to... Let our cups become a bit half full and actually celebrate. I do believe that. I think it's been a wonderful summer. But you know, there's the worst economic problems we've had in decades, if not a century, on our doorstep. Actually, it says in Psalm 4, many people are asking, who can show us any good? And I think we're in a time when people are asking and seeking for good. And I think as we go into the autumn, can I come in this please to pray? Be active. Be working. God's tremendous generosity. If we're already Christian, have we, have we let that run dry a bit? Do we actually still remember that God's grace is amazing, that we've been let off the hook and been given eternal life? If we do remember that, we should worship. And what is our response to the Holy Spirit? Thank you.